Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Fashion, because of its impacts and also because it's seeing the impacts of climate already happening in the supply chain in particular, in places where the impacts of climate are, are happening, we know that it's a critical issue for the sector to address. The challenge remains that lots of brands and companies and some suppliers around the table are really taking a lot of action, but we're not yet bringing everybody around that table. When thinking about the solution side of things, not just individual solutions, but looking at, is there an opportunity for the industry as a whole to be a solution to the climate crisis? Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Friday, August 13th. This week, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a new report from the world's top climate scientists warning that global temperatures will rise 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2040 and underscoring that human influence is unequivocally responsible for global warming since the late 19th century. The fashion industry's greenhouse gas emissions are estimated to be between 4 and 10% of the global total. On this week's BOF podcast, Deputy Editor Brian Baskin is joined by Michael Sadowski, a sustainability advisor and former Vice President of Sustainability at Nike, Leila Petri, Chief Executive of Sustainability Consultancy 2050, and Hannah Pang, Head of Marketing and Advocacy at sustainability consultancy Futera to unpack fashion's role in slowing global warming. Here's Michael Sadowski, Leila Petri, and Hannah Pang 
Inside Fashion. Michael, I'd like to start with you and get a little bit meta. Why is this fashion's problem to solve? I mean, let's say I'm Nike or Gucci and I look around and I say, I sell clothes, I'm not making cars, I'm not operating a coal-fired power plant. Why do I need to be thinking about this so urgently right now? Uh, sure. Um, thank you, Brian. So um, I think it's important to note that um, it's humanity's problem to solve and fashion is one sector um, that needs to decarbonize. So regardless of what um, sector um, you find yourself in, we know that we have to reduce emissions um, very significantly between now and 2030 and then on the way to 2050. And so um, roughly um, reducing emissions by half by 2030 um, and then to net zero by 2050. Um, there are a number of estimates of, of fashions, greenhouse gas footprints. Um, we can talk about this in a bit more detail. The, the data is not ideal, um, but we do know that fashion does have a significant carbon footprint. Um, and as with other sectors, it must reduce that. And so, um, you know, we know the effects and we, we know the predictions of where we're going if we keep on this business as usual trajectory. Um, and so fashion, um, because, it's a, because of its impacts and also because it's seeing the impacts of climate already happening in the supply chain in particular, in places where the impacts of climate are, are being, um, um, are, are happening. Um, we know that it's a critical issue for the sector to address. Thank you. And I'd love to get into the data question in a little bit, but yeah. first, Layla, on, on this more than almost any other issue we're talking about today, we hear a lot about the need for collective action for the industry to work together. And you've been involved in some of the industry's biggest efforts on this front. And I, I'd love for you to tell us how, how that's going first, um, how much progress has been made and, and also why it's so necessary for brands to think of this as an industry problem as opposed to their you know, problem as a brand. Mm. I mean, I think fundamentally, this is a problem which no individual company can solve on its own. You know, we have all sorts of in really intractable issues around infrastructure, around incentives, um, around policy, and no one actor can really operate within that system without being affected by it. So all these brands have supply chain scope three targets that are also dependent on other actors. And really what we've realized is that, you know, everybody in this sector is codependent on each other and other actors like policymakers and suppliers to succeed. So I think that's really spurred a lot of the collaboration that we see. So for example, the Fashion Charter, the Fashion Pact, um, now TE and SAC have targets around climate as well that are shared. Um, but I think the challenge remains that lots of brands and companies and some suppliers around the table um, are really taking a lot of action but we're not yet bringing everybody around that table you know we're not yet properly facilitating those discussions with policymakers although efforts are definitely underway um, we've not yet fully balanced out the engagement with brands versus let's say supply chain actors raw materials producers um, those who are further down the value chain and although um, there is some engagement with financial institutions, I think in particular there, we can do more because unless we unlock financial flows to you know, address the challenging issues about investment in, in parts of the value chain, we're really not going to succeed in the kind of transformation that's needed to become 1.5 degree aligned. So yeah, I think there's been huge progress and it's extremely encouraging to see all these companies come together and these collective um, programs exist. But I think the next stage is very much about really expanding that influence beyond those we're comfortable with and really reaching out beyond into the value chain and with all these other kinds of actors. And then Hannah, you're the one advising companies about how to talk about this very complicated topic to consumers. Uh, I mean, do you think the industry is succeeding at getting its customers to care about emissions and what could it be doing better? 
Definitely. I think it's uh, we've made a lot of progress in in this space. We know that there's increasing consumer demand for this type of information. And I think if we think about what we need to do moving forward and something that came up a lot in in the index is the gap between um, where we're going and what we're doing to to get there. So we, we sometimes talk about it as we no longer have a, uh, a problem knowledge gap, but we have a solutions knowledge gap. Um, so we know the direction, we know the vision that we're, that we're going in, but now we wanna know how are we going to get there and consumers are increasingly interested. So I think we saw some really interesting examples of this um, in this past year with the Black Lives Matter movement. There was a lot of lip service, service to it, but consumers then wanted to know, okay, what are you actually doing? What are the actions that you're taking? Um, to be able to to uh, um, be able to speak to that in in a credible in a credible way, and I think it's the same with with climate. Um, we're seeing that with the youth climate movement; they're demanding uh, to know what you're doing. And from some of the research that we've done at Futera, we've seen this increase massively over the past couple of years, especially with the rise of purchasing power for Gen Z. So you know they're the ones who grew up with fake news. They want to know the information. Um, they want the proof points. Um, they want to know what you're tangibly doing to get there. And they also, they want to be involved in the process as well. So also, how are you helping them be more sustainable uh, as well? And earlier when we were talking, a couple of you raised the point that too much information can also be a problem, it can almost be counterproductive to provide this deluge of, of facts and figures and, and different programs that different brands are working on. Why is that a danger and, and how do you strike the right balance in communicating this? Yeah, I think in, from our perspective, it can be a form of greenwashing as well. If you're just dumping a huge amount of data out into the world that takes ages and ages to sift through, then that's not really helpful or, or useful for, for anyone, especially for consumers um, when they're not the experts in sustainability. They just want to know the impact of the thing that, that they're trying to buy from you um, and to ensure that your actions align with what you're speaking to so they can double check, okay, my values aligned with this company or this brand that, um, that I'm buying into. So uh, at Futera, we often talk about the value of uh, honesty versus transparency. So transparency can just, as I said, be this kind of dump of data and you consider it to be transparent. But honesty requires you to be vulnerable, to talk about where you are in the process um, and to let people know if you're not tracking towards these targets, why, why aren't you tracking towards them and what are you doing to get back on track? Well, and I think so... There's also probably a, point, a difference between point of sale communication and then just sort of general brand communication and narratives in the media. Because I do see, on the other hand, a somewhat dumbing down of the messages that people want to tell about sustainability challenges because they want a nice shiny answer that's going to make people feel good. And of course, we want to be positive, but sometimes reality is quite complex and nuanced. And the number of times I've written a very careful like explanation for someone in the media outlet who's then like gone, no, we just want like three bullets and... <laughs> fluffy um, and I think you know we don't want to overwhelm consumers when they're trying to make purchasing decisions because actually, actually that's an emotional and kind of uh, you know already complex decision but I do think in the more general narratives we we tell about sustainability at the global level we should also try to be as open as possible about what is going wrong like what are the complexities what do we still need to fix rather than just trying to show you know the good news all the time because I think only then will we have brands saying truthfully where they're at on the journey at the moment if you say anything about where you're at on the journey it can open you up to more criticism than saying nothing so lots of brands and, and you know companies are just staying quiet because it's actually quite a safe strategy um so yeah I think we really need to break that down a little bit as well and just have much better 
proxies for that information much better you know cross industry systems much better ways of communicating that but not forgetting the nuance and the the realities that we're dealing with and, and michael to bring you into this um you're a big advocate for science-based targets um can, can you explain what that means and i guess how that helps consumers and and also people in the industry tell when a company is serious about reducing emissions mm. versus just sounding like they're serious uh, sure. So um, there's an initiative called the Science-Based Targets Initiative. It's a collaboration between uh, four global NGOs, uh, CDP, WWF, WRI, and UN Global Compact. And in brief, they came together to bring clarity and consistency to corporate climate change target setting. Um, because maybe five years ago, companies were coming out with targets that um, were not really grounded in the right level of, level of ambition. Um, that's required to um, to stay within uh, a 1.5 degree Celsius trajectory. And so um, essentially it's, it's targets that are aligned with um, that trajectory. Um, I think there are about 1300 companies that are now committed. Um, I think over hundred fashion companies, increasingly we're seeing more manufacturers get engaged. Um, I don't think science-based targets are on the radar of consumers to be totally honest. Um, I think it's very much a, it's an industry thing. We're talking about it on this call and amongst ourselves. Um, I think it's slowly getting out, but I think um, it is an important badge to judge whether a company is serious. Um, and um, as part of this, companies have to disclose their progress, which is a key, which is a key part. And so, um, in theory, you should be able to look on a company's website or on CDP or on other platforms to see how a company is performing. Um, so there's great ambition and great momentum. Um, but I don't think it's yet a consumer play. I think it's showing up with policymakers, investors, and other stakeholders, but it hasn't made it to consumers just yet. Uh, I, think, I think the one part of targets that, that does tend to trickle down to consumers is the date attached to them. Um, I'm often seeing you know, 2025, 2030, even 2050 on some of these, some of these targets and some of these initiatives. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, maybe a question for any of you who want to take it. How do we hold brands accountable over this long a period of time? And, and how do you hold consumers' yeah. attention for something that might play out over decades? Yeah, I'll just say, and then I'll, I'll let others um, chime in. Um, the Science-Based Targets Initiative has a time frame requirement. So it says no, no sooner than five years, no longer than 15 years. And mm -hmm. so this is why you'll see companies with different target dates. And so you may see 2025, you may see 2030. Um, there's some flexibility built in because companies have different levels of appetite in terms of how far out they want to go with targets. 15 years, I think you could argue, is probably um, too far out for most companies. I mean, management teams are changing probably every two to three years. And so, um, and so I think um, that's the science-based targets initiative. The annual reporting requirement, I think, is really key here. So that as a stakeholder, you can look at how is carrying Nike, Puma, Audi doing in terms of their targets? I, I Brian, I, I don't think consumers are seeing the, the date, in my opinion. I'm curious to see how others feel about that. Um, I think um, we're looking at that for sure. And I think investors are questioning, how are you doing? Um, but I, I'm not yet seeing that trickle down to consumers, but Leila and I, I'd welcome your thoughts on that as well. I mean, I think from my side, having something like a net zero by 2050 target is a good signaler that you're taking this conversation seriously, that you see the big picture, that your company is thinking long term. And I think companies are prone to not thinking long term. So in a way, that's quite positive. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, as Michael already touched on, you know, the reality is 
it's almost meaningless to companies to think more than a few years out. So I think there's this sort of balance between having more like tactical targets for the interim and then having these long-term goals. Um, but I think actually what we also need to consider is that the industry itself all needs to pivot to net zero by 2050. And so actually a more meaningful transition in goal setting that's an accountability that's going to need to happen is to say, how does the whole industry transform and what does that mean for any individual actor within it? Which is to a certain extent what the Science-Based Targets Initiative does, but I think we also are now struggling with questions about you know, um, SMEs and their responsibilities about, you know, how to allocate, um, you know, the reductions needed across different kinds of actors within the sector. What are, you know, those hard to abate emissions versus stuff that just is annoying and costs you a lot of money. Um, and, you know, how do we, how do we create a fair system that's also going to generate accountability? So I think, especially around script three emissions, there's more work to be done for brands to, to really get them to that stage of ambition. And particularly, I think, yeah, we struggle with, growth <laughs> as an issue um, in, in comparison to the sort of short-term or long-term goals. Um, so I think that's definitely something that we'll need to crack as well. How do you reduce your emissions while still continuing to generate business growth? And I can jump in from uh, uh, adding consumer kind of into that um, perspective. Uh, and I think that kind of goes back to what we were discussing before of that's part of the value of speaking about where are you today? So what's happening in the present moment? So I totally agree with your point of these big targets being a great signal that you are moving in the right direction as, as a company and that you're committed to it, that it is a long-term plan. It's not just a bandwagon that you're um, jumping onto, uh, but for what you're doing today, that's the thing that is going to be more interesting to, to your consumer. So what are the actions that you're taking that will help you reach those long-term long -term goals? Um, and as I mentioned, it's, it's both about you know the tangible actions that you are uh, doing today. Uh, it's if you are not on track to be able to reach those targets, why is that the case? Um, and what are you doing to, to get back on track? And what we found is that actually builds trust. So it's not to say that um, you know, you have to be presenting 100% on track or 100% perfect. That's not what consumers are really looking for. They're looking for honesty about where you are. And if you do mess up and you're not quite on track, why is that the case? And what are you doing to, to get back on, on, onto it? Um, I think as well, just to build on, on one of my previous uh, points, the other thing that consumers are interested in is how are you helping them be more sustainable? How are you helping them be more climate friendly? So what are the touch points that you have with your consumer that allows them to see how you're bringing your climate action to life, whether that is in store or through how the clothes are made? So how are you communicating that on your hand tags or at your, your point of sale? So um, I think we need to think very broadly about our our climate communications and it's of course both industry facing um, and it's the science-based targets and it's the policy and regulation and it's multi-stakeholder initiatives and it's also how do we bring our consumers along with us as well they're the ones who are driving demand um, which can help push uh, action further um, but they want to be in, they want to be involved and we need to give them the opportunity to do so and being transparent and honest in our communications to them um, will be key in, in making that happen Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Let's talk about solutions now. Can each of you give me one or two things that you know look especially promising to you? And just sort of a lightning round. Why don't we start with mm-hmm. Michael? <laughs> I would say that um, if you look at the the fashion value chain, probably about half of total emissions sit within tier two. So knitting, weaving, dyeing, finishing, and so really. Um, we have to decarbonize that piece of the value chain, and that um, requires renewable electricity, which is a you know, um, which is the energy source for knitting and weaving, and then it's going to require a wholesale shift out of coal to generate heat for for coloration. And so, that part is a big unknown for me. So it's not a solution, but I think um, you know there are companies working on different technologies in that space. Um, there's not nearly enough investment. There's not nearly enough work happening in that space to get out of coal within the time frame that we need. Um, but there's, you know, we have the technology on the renewable electricity side to solve that portion of tier two. I think the challenge there is more on the policy side uh, and on the investment side. Um, but, but for me, the, the focus um, really needs to be on that tier two piece. And by the way, I'm not saying that it's those companies, it's really the brands that need to support um, the fabric that they're buying from tier two. Um, and I kind of build on that, Michael, because I think 
I still remain optimistic about the potential for unlocking financial flows for especially renewable energy and energy efficiency, because we know that there's in many places a pretty decent payback or risk reduction or kind of commercial benefits from taking those actions. But actually the barriers are more like um, comfort with that type of change, financial flows and the barriers to lending or kind of operating models that make financial sense. Um, and sort of credit issues like there's all a kind of thorny challenge around how do you get the financial flows to those SME actors who need it but I really yeah. see that you know development organizations are really ramping up in this space we start to see like blended finance solutions we start to see innovation around how to activate that that work but I think the key now will be to actually work with the industry bodies in each geography um, with policymakers and definitely with those big financial institutions to try and create mechanisms that will unlock that um, the other one I think is very early days, but could be amazing, is regenerative agriculture, because I think although we don't really see scale at all yet um, around certain uh, you know, agricultural crops or other sort of animal based products, um, the potential is there to um, not only reduce climate impacts, but actually you know, have a net benefit or a restorative um, impact. So I think if we can get the mechanisms for that right, if we can get it credit uh, for those impacts right, and if we can get the investment flows again right, um, I think that has huge potential to transform the impacts of the sector. Are, are you encouraged by all the talk lately about green bonds and these oversubscribed bond issues and um, mm -hmm. ESG investing in general? I mean, does that mean there's actual momentum on that front? Mm. I mean, green bonds, I think, can be part of the picture, right? I think especially at brand level, they seem like a pretty attractive investment opportunity. Um, and brands are using those to unlock the kind of um, impact that they need to drive. But I don't see a huge amount of trickle down yet from that to where the, the need is actually greatest. And I think if you were to generate green bonds at like a municipal level or a country level, in production countries like that might be more meaningful, but they lack the capacity to really put those packages together a lot of times, or at least are not incentivized to do so. So I think those kind of vehicles can be extremely exciting, but I think as yet the people who are using them are those who already have high competency and high financial flows and you know are, are already doing quite well. So yeah, I think it's really about using them in the places that need them most. And Hannah, what are you seeing on the solutions front? Well, uh, first, just to say, building off of, of what, what Layla was, was speaking about, I love that reframing of rather than reducing the amount of problems in the industry, how can we look at fashion as an actual solution to climate change? How can we um, shift our, our production and consumption in a way that is actually regenerative? Um, so I think that's, that's a really nice reframing when thinking about the solution side of things, not just individual solutions, but looking at is there an opportunity for the industry as a whole to be a solution to, to the climate crisis? Um, and then I think a, a couple other points, some of, of what we've been speaking about is with these multi-stakeholder initiatives, with industry-wide collaboration, there's a huge opportunity for us to level up the entire industry when it comes to climate action and sustainability. So I don't think we have to have an incredibly competitive approach and be kind of keeping our cards close, close to our chest when it comes to how we um, are becoming more sustainable. Um, as uh, individual organizations. Um, so I think the collaboration piece is a huge one in terms of um, how do we drive action at speed and at scale. Um, and then again, to speak to the consumer side of things, uh, I think what is really uh, exciting uh, for me or that's something that I'm seeing as, as a signal is consumers are asking companies to prove it. So they're asking for the proof points. They're asking to 
um, know the details behind what you're playing lip service to. What is your, what are you saying in your marketing and communications? And then how are you backing that up both within uh, your corporate um, corporate side of things, but as well as with your suppliers and how you actually make your products. Uh, and then finally, I think one of the um, uh, most exciting signals for me from a, I guess, a, a nerdy perspective is I did not think I would see the day where we would have so many um, kind of carbon footprints on product labels. Um, and that's just has been increasing a lot recently. So and I think that's an incredibly interesting signal that shows that consumers are actually interested in the impact of the things that they are buying. Um, so that's that's kind of a yeah, an interesting one for me as a as a big signal. I'd like to turn to an audience question now. Um, the most popular comment by far was about a particular solution that I didn't hear mentioned here, which was carbon offsets. Um, someone asked, is it is it a useful tool or an excuse to pollute? Anyone want to take that one? Uh, well, I'm going to give it a quick answer. Sure Michael yeah. doesn't. So. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is my particular opinion now. I think it has potential to be misused or accidentally misused, to be honest with you. And um, we spoke about this in our prep call. Like, companies in good faith can be like, "Oh, look, I've offset a whole range," and actually, that's not really endorsed by some of the world's sort of th leading thinkers on this in terms of an approach, because it's just pushing the responsibility onto those that you're offsetting with and I think offsets can be a very useful tool but I think it's just about knowing exactly when they're appropriate and actually for me a more exciting thing is to look at how to move beyond offsets towards funding action within the value chain that has measured GHG impact reduction that you can sort of potentially then account for either within your balance sheet or through new mechanisms that maybe are developing around sort of, they don't like the term insetting, but basically insetting, like how do you turn offsets into something that's relevant to your value chain? So I would say that's the most exciting part of the offsetting debate for me is actually mm -hmm. pivoting towards relevant mm -hmm. impacts for your value chain and how you fund those. And I'll just add that the focus should be on reducing emissions. Mm, exactly. Period. So that's what the science says. That's what the, the NGOs work in the science-based targets initiative, we must decarbonize all sectors um, at a much more ambitious pace. Offsets can help maybe take the, the rounding off of that, but, but frankly, we have to reduce emissions in a, in a major way. So if a, if a company has a dollar to spend on an offset, they should put that dollar into some of the things that Layla just mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. Use that dollar to support research to get a coal. Use that dollar to help your manufacturers put solar up on their roofs. That should be the focus, not planting a tree or, you know, buying a cook stove, et cetera. It should be on reductions. Yeah, agreed. And I think there that's a huge opportunity for communications as well to be able to explain what you mean when you use terms like this. So if you're using terms like net zero or offsetting, yeah. there's so many different types of offsetting. So um, what are you actually referring to? And I think that's something that brands and, and companies need to pay more attention to because they are going to be asked more and more questions about this because we are increasingly educated on, on the different types. So completely agree. We first need to aim for an absolute reduction of emissions and then focus on offsets like carbon sequestration. Um, and then, you know, kind of figure out what's the what's the level going down and down, but absolute reduction is, is definitely the first step. We're coming to the end of our time, but to conclude, I, I wanted to quickly go back to something Hannah said about cooperation and how brands need to set aside rivalries to address this. And I'm, I'm curious, how, how do we actually make that happen? How do you convince Nike if they do find some way to operate more sustainably, at, you know, at a pretty 
low you know manufacturing costs to, to share that with their rival instead of keeping that for themselves for example I think brands mostly are quite excited to collaborate as long as the structure is there to facilitate it and it's not a direct competitive advantage to each other. So you see a huge amount of cooperation, sharing of best practices with supplier engagement, you know, sharing of technical best practices, um, funding things together, you know, really wanting to collaborate. Um, I think the only place where I feel attention is sometimes around external messaging or around things that are about opening up new market opportunities. So where you see people being quite competitive is new sale platforms, new mechanisms for you know getting income as a brand. That's when it starts to break down. Um, but I think up until that point, actually, it's more just about creating the places where they can collaborate. Um, and also doing it at pace, because that's the other thing I see is that they just get bored of waiting and go off and do it on their own. But if we could do it quickly together, I think that would still be the preference. Yeah, Brian, I would say just to echo Leila's point, cooperation is happening. And I think this industry is probably more collaborative than most industries. But I think this collaboration is effectively a substitute for um, the government stepping in and pushing the industry to move faster. And so we should applaud brands and manufacturers for collaborating. And yet, to be honest, I don't think we're going to see the pace that we need without, you know, the proper regulation that actually requires um, manufacturers. And then that actually forces brands to step up and actually co-invest in these solutions. And so hooray for collaboration. And, you know, I think we're in trouble without regulation because um, cooperation is not going to pull us through. Consumers are absolutely not going to pull us through on this. Um, we need proper government oversight to make this all work. And on that note, I think we'll wrap things up. Thank you very much to all of our panelists for a great discussion. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the BOF podcast for our look inside fashion and how it connects to currents in the wider world. If you're not yet a BOF professional member, join today with our 30-day risk-free trial and benefit from exclusive access to agenda-setting analysis you won't find anywhere else. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Bartan, and Kevin Bobby Blanco in the BOF studio team. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. 
It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.